have you ever loved someone so much that whatever happened to them affected you? Like, like maybe you were having a good day, it wasn't a great day, but it wasn't a bad day, it was kind of a normal day, but this person that you loved so much, they came in and they were just on top of the world, something great happened to them, and just the fact that they were so filled with joy just kind of lifted your spirit. You ever had somebody like, and, and on the other side, you know, maybe they were going through something hard, maybe their heart was broken or they were crushed, and, and you just felt their pain, just because you loved them, you cared about it. Like, you know, I, I think of parents. A lot of times we're like that. When, when, when our kids are doing great, man, we're on top of the world. And when they're struggling, we actually feel their pain. I mean, there's some, there's, some, there's some very delightful, very kind, pleasant ladies in our church that are just so nice to have a conversation with. But if you cross one of their kids, they will politely rip your face off. You know, yeah, yeah not amen to the ripping the face off. Amen to the, that kind of love, that kind of care. Well, that's how the Apostle Paul was uh, for, his, for the church. He, he was like that. His heart was like that for the church. And when the church was being ripped apart by division, when there was sin that was trying to kill this church, it broke his heart. And he pleaded with them to remember the gospel, to, to remember who the enemy was and who the enemy was not. And don't let that enemy outwit you or outthink you. And his words apply to us today. In fact, I think they are particularly applicable to where we are as a church, where we are as a city, and as a nation. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, before we read the text, uh, I need to say something. Um, we are a Bible-believing church. If you're a visitor here this morning, you just need to know this going into this. We are a Bible-believing church, and that means a couple of things. It means, first of all, we believe the Bible is true. And when I say true, I don't mean true just like a crossword puzzle is true, uh, I, in a trivial sense. We believe the Bible is true in a way that's helpful, practical, and personal. And because the Bible is timeless, it's always timely for every person at every time in every place. And so when we open the Bible this morning, we, we receive it as truth. And we expect it. Every time we open the Word, we expect that it is going to be practical and helpful and speak to us where we are. We expect that this morning because we're a Bible-believing church. The second thing is, since we're a Bible-believing church, my opinion doesn't really matter. And quite frankly, neither does yours. Okay? What matters is what God says. See, since we're a Bible-believing church, my job as shepherd is not entertain you with funny stories or clever anecdotes, although that would be nice. It's not to have witty, pithy statements that play well on social media. My job is to say what God says. Because that, my friends, is what's going to help you deal with life. I mean, we live in a crazy world right now, and I, as your, I want you to live a godly, I want you to live a victorious life, and a cute story is not going to do that for you. But God's word will do that for you. You know, Scripture says in Genesis that God created the world by what? Speaking it. His words came out. And when he speaks, things come alive. And the book of Hebrews says even today, the universe is held together. Why? How? By his word. So he created everything by his word. He's holding it together by his word. And that means that I want to say what he says. Because what he says will get you through. So let's look at the text with that in mind, that we expect God to speak, and it matters what he says. I want you to see three things out of Paul's life here, Paul's heart, Paul's purpose, and Paul's enemy. 
And all three of these are wonderfully and painfully practical for where we are today. First of all, Paul's heart. Look at verse 4 is where we begin reading of 2 Corinthians 2. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Now, I think I know, I think I know what Paul feels here, because I think I've felt this, this this week. See, the context for what we just read is there's some deep divisions at the church in Corinth. If you'd read 1 Corinthians, you would know that, and there's kind of an idea that there was another letter that we don't have that was written to the Corinthians where he was correcting and disciplining over sin. And, and what's going on, we're going to learn this shortly in the text, is the enemy of our souls was trying to divide them. And it messed up Paul. Paul was in anguish. He was writing that he says, I wrote with t- tears are streaming down his face as he writes to his people because he feels in himself what's happening to them. Now let me ask you a question. Where did Paul get that heart for the church? Answer, Jesus. In in Paul's own conversion story, you remember the story, he's on the road to Damascus and he's going to persecute Christians and and, and, and this bright light appears, he's down on the ground, he looks up and Jesus says in Acts 9 chapter 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, who are you? I don't even know who you are. And, And he doesn't realize that when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. Like Jesus takes the church so personal, he so identifies with the church that what happens to the church is what's happening to him. And so Paul feels that same way. What's happening to the church, he feels in himself. And in fact, he says we should feel that way. In in 1 Corinthians, he was writing to the Corinthians, he said this in, in chapter 3, verse 16. He said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you? And, and, and this is not talking about your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, he will say that. But in chapter 3, it's you plural. A, a, a better translation would be, don't y'all know that y'all are the temple? Of the, in other words, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. And y'all are that temple. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he said it this way. He, he's talking about food sacrifice to idol and people who are just like, I'm free. I don't care about anybody else. I'm just going to use my freedom. He says this. He, he said, you've got to be careful because you'll destroy your brother for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And then listen to what he says. When you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Paul is saying, whatever you do to the church, you're doing to Jesus, and, and he feels it too. And Paul's saying, I feel it too. Now, this is both a comfort and a challenge to us. It's a comfort because this is how Jesus feels about us. I mean, this is pretty awesome. When, when, when something happens to us, Jesus takes it personally. When the enemy's messing with you, Jesus takes that personally, okay? And that's a comfort. But there's also a challenge that we shouldn't do anything to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. We should be careful with that. I mean, I mean, and, and, and here's the deal. I need to have a heart for the church that Jesus has for the church. And so do you. And so if, if you don't have that heart for the church, you know, just ask him for it. I think Jesus loves that prayer. I think Jesus loves it when we say, Lord, uh, my heart is not that. Would you give me a heart for your church? 
Would you give me a heart for my brothers and sisters here to care for them, to love them? Would you give me that heart? God answers that prayer. And so that's the first thing is Paul's heart for his church was reflecting Jesus' heart for the church and so should ours. But, but the second thing is Paul's purpose in writing this. Look at, look at verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. And to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So someone had been in sin and the church, he was instructing the church to discipline them. And they did that and this guy apparently repented and came back. And here's what he says. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So notice, Paul's purpose here in a word, is redemption, right? He wants forgiveness, he wants healing, he wants comfort, and he wants them to live out the gospel and live out the truth of the gospel by restoring this brother and not cutting him off. See, Paul's purpose was not to win an argument. It was to win a brother. Because the gospel has eternal consequences. This wasn't a game to Paul. Like, we don't want to lose our brother, His purpose is redemption. So he says, reach out. Verse 9, the reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. And they had. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. And this leads to the third thing, which is Paul's enemy. Look at verse 11, Paul's enemy. In order that Satan might not outwit us, For we are not unaware of his schemes. Now notice here who the enemy is and who the enemy isn't. The enemy is not their brother. The enemy is not their sister at church. It's not even Rome. It's not Caesar. It's not the political opponents. The enemy is the enemy. Satan. I mean, those other people might be used by the enemy, okay, but they're not the enemy. Paul makes it even clearer in Ephesians 6, verse 12, when he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we know who the enemy is. Now that's very important, because if you don't know who the real enemy is, you might shoot the wrong person. Uh, A number of years ago, I went through uh, the Citizens Academy of the FBI. It was really cool. Uh, it was like one night a week for something like three months or something. It was like three hours on a Wednesday night, and they would have different lecturers come in and teach you uh, about the FBI and how they investigate and what they're trying to do and all that kind of stuff. And it was really great, uh, and I learned a lot. But at the very end of the course, the cool thing was they let all of us go into the FATS machine, which is something like the firearms training simulator. Okay, so you go into this room, and all your student, uh, you know, friends are there. They're watching you, and the head of the the head legal counsel for the FBI is there, and she's watching. And you, and it's a big white screen. It's a whole the whole room, the entire wall is a screen, and you've got a gun. It doesn't have bullets in it. It has like a gas chamber, so when you pull the trigger, it kicks like it's shooting a real bullet, but it's not. And you go in, and they put you in a scenario, right? And so when I entered, I had I had an M4, so I'm there. Right? And I'm ready to go. And they put me in a scenario of an active shooter in a high school. Now, here was the problem. I didn't know who the enemy was. 
I didn't know who the bad guy was. I didn't know what he looked like. I was just there in the simulator with this M4 walking through the hallways, and, and people would come, and they would scream, and, ah, and they'd run across in front of you. And, and it wasn't like it was an elementary school, so just don't shoot the little people. It, it was... It was a high school, so it was bigger people running out. You don't know who's the bad guy. And every time I'm about to cap somebody, I don't like, because I don't know who the bad guy is. And all of a sudden, a guy jumps out from the side, and he's got a knife in his hand, and he's about to stab a teacher. And so I went, pow, pow, pow. Shot him three times. In the back. Right in the back. The, the, the simulator goes off, light comes on, and the head legal counsel, she says, um, did you just shoot that dude in the back? I said, yes, ma'am, I did. <laughs> she said, uh, it, was that a, a, a legal use of lethal force? And we had just had a lecture on this, right? And so I told her I, it was and why I thought. And she said, but did he have a knife or did he have a remote control? And all of a sudden, I had this moment of panic. I just shot a dude because he had a TV remote. Because I didn't know who my enemy was. I'm shooting the wrong person. I mean, and this is in a simulator. Can you imagine what real police officers deal with? I mean, they have to, in a moment, make a decision. And here I was, nervous as could be. It was just a screen. And I said, I'm pretty sure that was a knife. She said, are you sure? I'm like. And at that point, I think I'm stuck. I might as well go the whole way with it. Yep, I'm sure. It was a knife. So they said, play back the footage. They play back the footage, and it was a knife. I capped the bad guy, okay? So, but here's my point. Here's my point. If you don't know who the enemy is, you shoot the wrong people. And listen, life isn't a simulator. I was just in a simulator. And you know what? The enemy of our soul is happy for us to forget who the enemy is and shoot each other. He loves that. In fact, that's part of his strategy. That is one of his schemes. But we know who the enemy is. And we don't, this text says, we don't just know who the enemy is. We know his MO. We know his strategies. Look at verse 11 again. The NIV says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The ESV puts it this way. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices or his designs. That's the ESV. The New Living Translation says, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are very familiar with his evil schemes. The New King James says, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And then just for fun, let's throw in the message. We are not oblivious to his sly ways. Now, all of these English translations are grappling with a play on words in Greek that you can't see in English because we don't have the same play on words. Basically, a literal translation would be something like this. Paul is saying, we are not unaware because we are mindful of what is in the devil's mind. It's actually the same Greek word. It's a play on words. We have in our mind what the devil has in his mind. In other words, he's trying to play us, but he can't play us. You know why? Because we will not be played. We're not unaware of his schemes. We know his designs, his devices, his sly ways. That snake. Now, we don't have enough time to go through the whole Bible today and look at all the ways that, that he does this, all of his schemes and all of his devices. But, but know this, Satan is a deceiver. 
He is cunning. He's crafty. He's an accuser. He's a liar. That's who he is. That's what he does. Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he's speaking his native language because he's a liar. And the father of lies. And his goal of all of that is to steal, kill, and destroy me, you, the body of Christ. And his whole methodology comes down to this. Divide and conquer. He wants to divide us. He wants to divide me from you, you from me. But guess what? We're not unaware of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his devices. We know his MO. We see it for what it is. So let me just give you a couple of the schemes that come out of this text in 2 Corinthians 2. But not only that, just the whole Corinthian uh, correspondence that goes back and forth between them. There's, there's a lot of things in the Bible from beginning to end. Start in, in, in Genesis 3, we see the schemes of Satan all the way through. And there's a lot of things we could talk about. But let me just point out two that comes from Corinthians. Okay, Two schemes of the enemy. One is taking offense and the other is forgetting the gospel. Taking offense... And forgetting the gospel. Let's look at them. First of all, taking offense. One of the ways Satan tries to divide me from you and you from me, he tries to divide our church, he tries to divide our city, he tries to divide our world, is, and this is probably one of his favorite schemes, is for us to take offense at somebody. John Bevere wrote a book entitled The Bait of Satan, which is all about this. It's all about taking offense and how uh, this is a trap of Satan. In fact, the word for offense in, the, in, in Greek in the New Testament is the same word that was used for bait that was on a trap for an animal. And so when an animal came and saw the bait and he took the bait, bam, it slammed down on him and he was trapped. It's the same word for an offense. And so what, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to get you offended at somebody and so he can entrap you. When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, he said, look, you know, an elder, a teacher, they, they got to be willing to talk to people and able to talk to people so that these people will, here's what he said, come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, the scary part of that verse is that can happen. Satan can bait you. And you take the bait, and bam, the trap comes down on you. Jesus said, it's going to happen. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 1, it is impossible that no offense should come. <laughs> Don't you love Jesus? He just tells the truth. He's like, there ain't no way you're going to make it through life without somebody offending you. It's going to happen. So we're all of us, and we're all going to have an opportunity, probably almost every single day of our life, to be offended by somebody. And in fact, it's going to get worse the closer we get to the end times. In the, you know what Paul said about the end times? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that in the end times, people would be, and I quote, lovers of themselves. And of all the end time prophecies, that's got to be the most accurate. <laughs> I mean, just look out there. People love themselves. There's more self-centeredness than there seems like there's ever been in our world. And that self-centeredness leads people to be critical of other people and get offended by them. There was this guy who wrote a number of books in the early 20th century. His name was C.S. Lewis. You may have heard of him. And, and he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, which are letters written from an uncle demon named Screwtape to his novice nephew demon named Wormwood. 
and Wormwood's been assigned this Christian to tempt, right? He's the, the Wormwood is the tempter that's been assigned to this guy who's just become a new believer, and, and, he, and he's trying to pull him away from Jesus, pull him away from everything that is right. And, and so here's what Screwtape writes to Wormwood and how to get him away from Jesus. He says this, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Now, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So he says one of the best tools you have is, is the church. Here's what he does. So Screwtape writes to Wormwood. He says, here's what you do. You get your assignment, that this Christian that you're assigned to, you get his focus off of Jesus and get him onto the imperfections and the failures of the people sitting around him at church. And here's what you do. You get him to see, man, these people are judgmental. Man, he, man she can't even sing good. He don't even, man, what? Doesn't he know that that shirt don't go with those pants? What's wrong with him? Man, he, he preached that sermon and he had four points instead of three. Don't he know? The NFL pregame comes on. And then it gets more serious than that. These people are hypocrites. And you begin to judge people. And then here's what Screwtape writes. He said, once you get him doing that, focusing not on Jesus, but get him focusing on the people around him, he says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where Jesus wants him to be a pupil. See how this works. We're getting closer to the end times. People become even more and more lovers of themselves, self-centered, and, and, and they begin to get critical of others. And then here's what happens. Inevitably, because Jesus said it's going to happen, an offense comes. There's an opportunity for the offense. And what do you do? Because you're self-centered, you play the martyr. And you start comparing yourselves amongst yourselves. And you feel sorry for yourself because you're really laying it down. And you're being persecuted. Brother Charles Simpson has a story. He tells a story of a, a dream that he had. And, and in this, I think it was a dream. I, I think I got this straight. And, and I can be corrected if I'm misremembering this. But he had this dream. And in this dream, the sons of God were presenting themselves before the throne of God. And, and, and in heaven, in this dream, the, the scars of the suffering they went through were like trophies. For God's glory, they honored him. And so, and so there was Stephen who had been stoned, and he had scars all over his body from being stoned, and he presents himself to the Lord, and, and there's, this, there's this, it's like a trophy. And, and James, who had been beheaded, he had a scar around his neck, and he presents himself. And then, and then there's Peter who had been crucified upside down, and he's got holes in his hands and his feet, and they're presenting these to the, to the Lord. And then Brother Charles gets up there. And the Lord looks at him from the throne and looks at him and says, what's wrong with you? What did they do to you? Brother Charles said, they hurt my feelings. <laughs> I've been that guy. We don't really know anything about persecution yet. Yet. 
They hurt my feelings. So here's what happens. We get self-centered. We're leaning about ourselves. Where opportunity for offense comes. We get offended. We play the martyr. We feel sorry for ourselves. And you know what happens? You know what the result of all of that is? Division. Listen, and, and this is, if you just hear, please, if you hear this one sentence, there's somebody here, this one sentence is for you, and God is speaking something very deeply to you today, and here it is. Don't let someone sin against you produce sin in you. This is significant. Somebody needs to let this in. Don't let someone sin against you produce sin in you. Listen, people are going to sin against you. It's going to happen, but then you get to choose how you respond. Will you just respond in the same sin they committed against you? Because listen, I don't know if you believe this or not, but most of the time, people don't do things to you. They do things for themselves. Because self-centeredness is growing. Paul already said in the end times, people are going to be lovers of themselves. That's growing and growing and growing in our world. More selfish, more self-centered. All that's going to happen. So somebody's going to say, and most of the time they're doing it not to you. They're doing it for themselves. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, okay? There's some mean people out there. There's some mean religious people in the world. I'm just going to tell you that and warn you of that right now. But most people aren't that way. Most of the time when somebody does something to you, it's not, it's not they're doing it to you, they're doing it for themselves. So when you let someone sin against you, produce sin in you, you are being played. It's a scheme of Satan to divide. You're being played, man. You're being harvested. And Satan is sitting there the whole time going, ha, <laughs> That was my scheme the whole time. So what do you do when you have the opportunity for offense? How do you not allow the scheme of Satan to divide us? In an answer, very simply, do what Jesus did. Do what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2 says he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And here's what it says, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What, What did Jesus say? Jesus said, God will take care of it. My father will take care of him. He'll, he'll even up the score. Next chapter, chapter 3, verse 9, he's, Peter says this, do not repay evil with evil. Somebody sins against you, don't just sin back against them. Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. He said there's a blessing. When somebody assaults you, insults you, curses you, and you bless back, you love back, you guess what? You get a blessing. When you just curse them back, what have you done? You've entered into the spiral of violence, and now you've allowed sin against you produce sin in you. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and everyone else. Remember when I said at the beginning of this, this isn't my opinion? This is God's word. Romans 12, verse 14 And following, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Look at verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Quick question, which one is greater, good or evil? Good, you said that pretty quickly, but hold on a second. You know what I'm going to say now, right? You just said good was greater than evil, right, didn't you? Most of you, few of you, uh, some of you saw this trap coming, so you didn't say anything. If good, you know what I'm going to say, if good is greater than evil, then the last time somebody blasted you, why'd you blast them back? If good is greater than evil. If good is greater than evil, then when someone did something against you like that, why didn't you bless them back? Why didn't you do good with them? If good's greater than evil. Augustine put it this way when the early church fathers, he said, as light is greater than darkness, so good is greater than evil. See, the only way for darkness to overcome the light is if you remove the light. When you release light, darkness goes every single time. And it doesn't have, you know, a, an opinion on this. Like the darkness doesn't get to go, you know, should I leave? I don't know. Maybe I'll leave. Maybe I No, when you turn the light on, the darkness goes. It doesn't have a choice. Right? So the only way to conquer darkness is turn on the light. The only way to conquer evil is release the good. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. He said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So why would Jesus say, hey, why would he say, you need to respond the opposite. When, when somebody curses you, you bless them back. When, they, when they're ugly to you, you're kind to them. Why would he say that? Because good is greater than evil. Good conquers evil. And hear me, evil needs to be conquered. So the first scheme of the enemy is taking offense. And, and there may be some people here today, I don't know who you are, I'm not looking at anybody right now. See, sometimes when I make a point and, I, and somebody says, you looked at me when you made that point. I didn't mean, I, I have no, I'm, okay, I'm looking this way. There may be some of you today who have taken the bait of Satan. I have many times in my life. Many times in my life, I, I, he, he, he got me. <laughs> He schemed me. He, he, he put this trap out, and I took the bait. And if that's you, you know what? I don't have any condemnation for you here. I don't have zero condemnation. Here's what I have, an invitation for you to forgive them. And not just forgive them, begin to bless them. Pray for them. If you do that, let me tell you what will happen. It will set you free. I promise it will set you free, and it will bring healing. And it might even change them, but even if it doesn't, it will change you. So the first scheme of Satan that we're not unaware of, we, we know it, we, he, he can't play us because we're not going to be played, is taking offense. He's going to try to bait you to take offense. Here's the second one very quickly, and we'll be done, is forgetting the gospel. Forgetting the gospel. Here's the deal. Everyone lives their life according to some grand story, some meta-narrative, okay, which is an overarching story into which all of our little stories fit and in which we find meaning. Even people who think... Uh, you know, the existence of such a story doesn't exist. You know, like even people who think that life is meaningless, uh, they still live their life in some story. Even if the story is that, you know, we're all going to die and the sun's going to burn out and the whole universe is going to collapse in on itself and everything will be worth nothing and the, it's all absurd and it's me. That's still their story. 
kind of a sad story, but that's still their story that they're living in. As the disciples of Jesus Christ, our story, the overarching meta-narrative is the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus is Lord. And Paul unpacks it in, with the Corinthians in chapter 15 of his first letter. He says that here's the gospel that I preached. Here's the gospel that you're saved by, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to us. And here's the deal. If you will believe in him, put your faith in him, believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Now, here's the deal. The gospel, sometimes, especially as charismatics, we treat the gospel as if it's just the doorway that gets you into the kingdom and no more. No, the gospel is, 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 is the story we live in every day in which we find meaning and, listen to me, power to live in this world. And one of Satan's schemes, one of his devices, one of his sly ways, as as Eugene Peterson puts it, is to get us to forget the gospel. He wants to get our eyes off Jesus and live in a different story. 2 Corinthians 4, just a few verses past where we are in in 2 Corinthians 2. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, uh, Paul says this, the God of this age. In chapter 2, he calls him Satan. In chapter 4, he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan wants to blind us to the gospel. He wants to make us forget the gospel and live in another story, an alternate reality, an alternate story. And he's very good at this. You need to know this. The enemy of your soul is very good at trying to get you to live a different story than the gospel. And you know what? One of his favorite stories to get you to live in is the story of your past. Let me, let me kind of explain how, how this works. All right, Shanette, will you come up here? Again, I'm going to use Shanette as an illustration. Everybody welcome Shanette to the stage. She's just going to sit right here on the stage, right here on stage, okay? And, and, and let's say, here, here's Shanette, here's our sister in, in the Lord, and, and she's out one day, she's at the park, she's having a good day, you're having a good day, okay? So it's just like, hey, you know, God's good, I love Jesus, and, and I love people at New Life, and I got the best pastor in the whole world, and, 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 and I, was, I just threw that one in, I didn't even, that's not even in my notes. Uh, uh, and, and she's just feeling good, right? She's feeling good, and, and the whole time she's feeling good, the enemy of our soul, Satan, he's looking over here and he's like, ugh. How did she slip through our fingers? She knows a little. What am I going to do? She's having a good day. She's at the park. The breeze is blowing. The sun is shining. She loves Jesus. All right, here's what I'm going to do. And he calls one of his little imps over, right? He says, hey, 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 come here, come here. You know, he's like, hey, Wormwood, come here, come here. <laughs> yeah, boss. Yeah, boss. You see this over here? This is Shanette. And Shanette, I don't know, she, somehow she slipped through her fingers. She, she loved j- 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 Jesus. She loved Jesus. Because he had trouble saying Jesus' name. And, 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 and here's what I want you to do. I got a plan. I got a plan. I want you to get her to live in a different story than the gospel. I want you to get her to live in the story of her past. 
So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up and I want you to remind her of every mistake she's made as a daughter, every mistake she's made as an aunt, every mistake she's ever made at, at church or before church. I want you to remind her of mistakes in high school. I want you to remind her of mistakes. Although, I know. See, yeah. And, 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 and I want you to do all that. Okay, boss. remember that one time and watch he's actually telling her a true story but it's not the story of the gospel like there was an Elizabethan Puritan by the name of William Perkins he said don't believe the devil even when he tells the truth why he's trying to get her to live in a different story her past so he says remember when you did if people at church knew that they wouldn't think you were so cool. If people, they would let you play the drums. <laughs> and here's what happens. Here's what happens because this is the way your brain is, is, is developed because you have this part of your brain called the amygdala and it stores emotional perceptions whenever a memory has occurred. So when you are triggered somehow and a memory comes back to you, the amygdala kicks in and you start feeling the emotions of that thing and so you believe it to be true because you're feeling it right and so what does she start feeling she starts feeling whatever guilty she starts feeling shame she starts feeling whatever and it's her brain just working against her now she has a choice in this moment Shanette has a choice and here's the choice she can live in the story of her past or she can live in the story of the gospel she can let this get her down, and she's bummed out, and she's feeling sad and shameful. Or she can go, thank you, Jesus. Ha, thank you, Jesus, that, that, Romans says, that Romans says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. St. Corinthians 5 says, if you're in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. Right? And she begins to say things that she truths from scripture that she knows that like the truths that I say over and over again to me. Every day I say, I say these scriptures, the Lord loves me with an everlasting love. Yes, uh, the Lord rejoices over me with singing and dancing. Because I trust Jesus, I am holy and blameless in his sight today. I'm the apple of God's eye. I am precious in God's sight. He delights in me. I am forgiven, perfected forever, and free from condemnation because of what Jesus did for me. Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. I'm his dear child. Because what? She's living the story of the gospel. Now watch this. Watch this. Now, what was just an okay day has turned into a moment of worship because the enemy's attack that was supposed to draw her away from Jesus now is like spiritual Aikido. It's been turned against Satan, and now, yeah, there it is. See? And now it's pushed her towards Jesus. And listen, this, this is, this is going to happen to you many days of your life because you know why? Because y'all made some mistakes. Me too. Me too. Just this morning, Satan's trying to remind me of some of those. And you know what? You get a choice. Every time that memory comes back, you might even start feeling it because your amygdala kicks in. You have a choice. Am I going to live in the story of my past or will I live in the story of the gospel that says I am made new? And that's who I am. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shanette. She did a great job.
See, when we play along with the enemy and we decide to live in the story of our past, we just got played. But you know what this promise of this scripture is? We will not let the enemy play us. We are not unaware of his schemes. Now, here's the deal. I have actually way more notes that I'm just going to have to let go. But you know what? I feel like the Holy Spirit is doing something right now. So I think we're just going to end right now remembering this verse in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes.